screen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're con- continuing our study in this book. If you are using the Bibles there in the, the chairs in front of you, it's on page 814. Ephesians chapter 2. When I was a freshman in college, there was an art museum on the campus that housed one of the world's largest collections of religious art. There were over 400 works by famous artists. It focused primarily on the European old master works, the paintings by people like Peter Paul Rubens, Anthony Van Dyke, and the famous Dutch master Rembrandt. Now, having grown up in a little farming community, I had not had a lot of exposure to such sophistication. Uh, My parents had tried, but I had resisted um, that kind of a high culture. And so I, I was willing to learn, but it wasn't real high on my list of things that I needed to get done. And as a new college student, I was much more interested in checking out the hours that uh, the tennis courts were available, the swimming pool, the ball fields, and the snack shop. So it was really a requirement of my freshman orientation class that, that caused me to have to go to the art gallery. To pass the class, you had to take one of the, the tours. And I, I followed the advice that was given and not putting it off toward the, till the end of the semester to get it over with quickly. But quite honestly, I don't remember a lot about it. Uh, other than realizing there were a lot of rooms uh, and a lot of paintings, and when I saw the painting by Rembrandt, it was smaller than I had anticipated. Uh, that's what I remember. Um, Now, I could say at the end of my first semester of my freshman year that I had done the art gallery tour. But the truth is, I hadn't really done the museum and gallery. I spent some time, I checked a box that I was required to check to pass a class, and and I could say that I had done it. But the truth is, there were art critics that would come from around the world and spend days studying just certain artists or certain schools of painting and looking at those works and then still feel like they had not exhausted what was available. And so for me as a freshman to claim that I had done the art museum was was really superficial and naive. The truth is I didn't even know what I didn't know. In coming years, I I learned much more about the gallery and its artists. I learned of some of the symbolism in the various paintings and and how they use different light and colors and and then how the various schools had developed over time. But even then, quite honestly, I could still do the museum and gallery much quicker than a lot of other people. And I was done with my tour while others would still be, be looking. And I I realized that one thing in particular that did stand out to me was that the value of those paintings was the master artist who had painted them. When we come to this concluding section of the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, I hope that we haven't rushed through the first sections like a freshman in an art gallery. Because there is so much meat in chapters 1 and 2 that we don't get if we just go with a cursory view. 
And, and verse 10 of chapter 2 is, is going to state that we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. And the value is in the one who is doing the work. That we are saved with a purpose. That we're called to display the glory of the master's work to show the exceeding riches of his grace in his heavenly gallery, in heavenly places. Yet there's still so much that we don't get. I want us to consider the concluding verses of this first section this morning, but I want us to begin our reading in verse 1 again so that we get the full context to see what has taken place. If you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we'll begin our reading there. And you, he made alive, and I've darkened those words because those are not in the Greek text, but added by the translator so we get the flow of what's going on. And, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus." that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together as we look into this passage. Lord, as we come to this passage, we pray that you would speak through your word, that your Holy Spirit would apply the truth, that we would strive to display your handiwork in a way that exalts your mercy and your majesty, bringing you glory. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. In these final verses, in verses 8, 9, and 10, of this opening section, we, we have what has really been referred to as the heart of Paul's gospel. It's a concise statement of some of the great thoughts that have been developed already and, and developed in Romans, in, in Galatians. Paul was a staunch defender of the gospel. He had no sympathy and gave no ground for those that would undermine or obscure the truth. My, my wife and I were reading through Galatians and our family devotions and then into Titus, and, and it was amazing to see the strength of some of Paul's statements to those that would obscure the message. It's a great reminder for us that Satan is the father of lies and liars. And we live in a day when the truth is really under assault. As Christians, we're to display the, the new life of God that has been provided, and, and that's going to show up in our new works that, that God has prepared. And what I want us to consider this morning is that your salvation is God's gift with the purpose that he would be glorified by your new life. 
that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that, that that salvation is for a purpose. That salvation is all of God. None of us deserve it. And, and the truth is, left to ourselves, none of us would desire it. It's because of God's great love with which he loved us. He showed kindness to us when we did not deserve it. We, we weren't merely created beings who were struggling and he wanted to help us out. We were hostile creatures. We were rebels of God. And so we see in this passage the greatness of God. The first thing I want us to see is that you will rejoice in God's mercy. That's what we find in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. In this we see, and, and again, to properly understand God's mercy, we have to remember what we've already considered from these opening verses. We, have to, we, we cannot forget our desperate condition without Christ that, that is laid out in verses 1 through 3. Because without Christ, a person is spiritually dead, alive to unbelief, but dead to saving faith. But not only dead, we saw that we were defiant and defiled. We were drifting along with the course of this world and being influenced by the devil, being disobedient, the, the children of disobedience. But we can't blame our disobedience on the devil because it says we also fulfilled the desires of our flesh and of our mind. We did what we wanted. And so we were in a sorry condition. And because of this desperate state, we were deserving of condemnation. We were children of wrath just like everybody else. That's, that's where we're starting from. Those are the paints that God has to work with. Our alienation from God was, was twofold. It, it was because of our own sin and rebellion that, that we rebelled against his law, his lordship, and his love. But it was also because our sin had brought us under his judgment. We invited God's wrath. And, and it's important to see that so that it, it's not, you know, otherwise we don't see the wickedness of sin and we'll fa fail to see the marvel of his mercy. That we will not place the value that we should on the work of Christ. So our spiritual life is magnified the display, magnifying the display of the surpassing riches of the glory of God. So how did this occur? Well, we find in these verses what takes place. And, and verses 8 and 9 are expanding on that parenthetical statement that was put in earlier that for by grace you have been saved. It's an expansion of this. In, in verse 5 and then verse 10 tells us the result. This is, these verses give us the cause and effect of our salvation. The first thing that we see, though, is salvation means that you are safe. You have been saved. Salvation is all of God. It's the story of the Bible. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, it's, it's one continuous theme of developing God's rescue of people who cannot save themselves. That when Israel is in Egypt, God hears their cry and steps in to rescue them. They couldn't save themselves. When, when the Lord sends Jonah to Nineveh and he doesn't want to go, and, and he complains, he said, God, I knew that you would show mercy on them. Because they couldn't save themselves. Only God can save. And the richness of God's mercy is that it secures the salvation of Gentiles as well as Jews. Ephesians is being written predominantly to a Gentile congregation. 
Now, there are, there are lots of, of occupations in our culture today that their job is to make people safe. And when we hear sirens and pull over to the side because an ambulance is going by or a fire truck because they're trying to keep somebody safe. Well, what are you safe from? When it says by, that you have been saved. Well, the first thing we, we understand is we're saved from sin's penalty. We were children of wrath. We were deserving of God's wrath. And we are safe from that, the, the work of Christ. We're, we're, we're saved from hell, which we deserve because of our sin and God's wrath. We're safe from death. Salvation means those who were dead now have spiritual life. A dead person has no concept of life. And I don't want us to miss this because we say, oh yeah, we know that. But understanding that one of the key aspects of our salvation is that relationship that we have with God. It says in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We, we often think of eternal life as the, the, the quantity of time. That when I die, I go to heaven, I live forever. But the truth is, everyone will live somewhere forever. That, that there will be eternal existence for everybody. And eternal life is more than just living in heaven forever, though that is part of it. But John 17, 3 tells us that eternal life really is about the quality of life. Knowing God through Jesus Christ, this is life eternal, that they may know the only true God. In fact, that, that theme is emphasized in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And we ended our, our scripture reading this morning at verse 16, but starting in verse 17, if you want to just look over there, you see that it really is speaking of the Gentiles walked in an unawareness of who God was. It says they walked in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That it's this relational aspect that, that you need spiritual life to have spiritual vision. Without spiritual vision, you're going to see like the world sees. You're going to think like the world thinks and you're going to come to the conclusions that the world comes to. You're going to walk in the futility of your mind just like the unsaved do. And understanding that we cannot make right choices in a visible world unless we're spending time in the spiritual world. Means we have to be in the Word of God. Salvation means that people who are spiritually dead, deserving of God's judgment and wrath, are now safe in Christ and have a spiritual vision. So how does that happen? Well, the positive statement is it's by grace. Salvation is by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved. This is the basis. It's, it's God's grace. It's his undeserved favor on those who deserve condemnation. We're rightly condemned and God shows mercy. Because of God's gracious dealings with us, when we certainly didn't deserve it, we need to deal with others in a gracious manner. That's part of the exhibiting the grace of God in our lives. The nature of salvation or the theology of salvation is by grace alone and then secondly is through faith alone. 
And we see that. So by grace, you have been saved through faith. See, faith is the first and foremost divine requirement placed on humans. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, we read in Hebrews chapter 11. But sometimes we think, okay, well, as long as I believe in God, I'm fine. Faith in, entails more than just believing in the existence of God, the, the intellectual agreement. That's obviously part of it. But there are some people that think, well, as long as I believe certain facts about God, I've got faith. You know, if I believe that Jesus lived on the earth, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, then, then I, I have saving faith. No, do you realize the demons believe that? They were there. They have that same belief and they tremble. The fact that somebody believes in God really is not difficult. The Bible says it is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. The heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, the realization of, of God is, is part of the image of God in man. Unbelief rejects the truth of God that's revealed. Romans 1 tells us in verses 20 and 21 that it, it states that creation reveals God's eternal power and deity, so everybody is without excuse. They're without excuse because the heavens declare the glory of God. And so, rather than surrendering, people reject it. It says they, they go from that and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible man and to birds, beasts, and creeping things. They put aside the theology, the theism, the trust in God, and exchange it for humanism, the image of man, and pantheism. Four-footed beasts, creeping things, birds, that, you know, welcome to America in 2022. I mean, when, when we have people that they, they can't even have the concept of the righteousness of God, they've put aside this. You know, it's not hard to believe in God. But saving faith involves more than that. Saving faith includes the understanding of, of truth, a knowledge, an intellect. The Bible says in, in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand. So there is an intellectual component. But that's not all there is. Saving faith is not merely a sentiment. Some, some people confuse feelings with faith. Well, I just had this feeling. You know, maybe it's, it's wonderful religious memories you know, I just, I, I have a religious background and when I think about that, it just brings up all these, these positive emotions. Well, well, that's wonderful, but that's not saving faith. Faith does involve the heart, the emotions. Saving faith means we fall in love with Jesus. That, that there's a relationship with him. In fact, the very last verse of Ephesians says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. So there has to be an, an emotional aspect to it. Saving faith is, is more, though, than just that. And Dr. McEwen, in his book on systematic theology, I've, I've adapted his definition a little bit, but he says, saving faith is the knowledge of and agreement with and wholehearted trust in the redemptive work of Christ as it's revealed in Scripture. So it's based on what's revealed in the Word of God. 
It means there is an understanding. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. So there is an intellectual aspect. There, there's also that commitment, but there's a volitional trust, putting our trust in the Lord. It has a cognitive element. It's not, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's evidence. There's evidence there of things not seen. There has to be something believed. It does impact our emotion when we understand the mercy of God, where we came from and what he's done. That ought to impact us emotionally, but there's a volitional aspect. <clears throat> in just a, about a week and a half, you've got the announcement in our bulletin, uh, a group of our, <clears throat> from our college will be, be doing their annual hike of the Grand Canyon. And I'm going to be joining them this year. Pray for me. Um, they, they needed help. I hope I don't need help. Um, but I'm planning to be part of it. And, and, and imagine with me, as we're coming out of that canyon, coming back to the campsite after 12, 15 miles of, of hiking, and, and to come out of the, the Grand Canyon, and if I get back to the campsite and somebody offers me a chair and I just plop down in it, I put my complete trust in that chair and do nothing to support myself. That's faith. That's the picture of saving faith. That my complete trust is in Jesus Christ alone. It's by grace alone, it's through faith alone, and it's in Christ alone. Because Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor, are tired, and weary, I will give you rest. So we rest in him completely. And trust him. God's grace is the ground of salvation. And faith is the means by which it's received. It's, it's the response which receives what Christ has already done. And the fourth thing that we see in this, pat, this opening section is that salvation is a free gift. It is the gift of God. That salvation is given by God. It's not of human origin. I mean, what do you have to do to get a gift? Receive it. If it's really a gift, it's just, it's given, but you have to take it. And the addition of the phrase, through faith, to by grace you have been saved, through faith, makes it clear there is no room for human merit. No merit of mine own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. That it is very clear we have nothing to do with it. In fact, in John chapter 4, we, we have the story of Jesus coming to the town of Sychar. And he strikes up a conversation with a, a Samaritan woman at the well there. And, and he asked her for water and she said, well, you know, you, you, you don't have anything. And she, he, she said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him for water. And she said, well, you don't have anything to draw with. And Jesus says this to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. It's a gift of God. She said, well, I, how do we do this? No, it's, it's a free gift. And we have to understand that it's because when we do, then we rejoice in God's mercy. But the second thing I want us to see in this passage is you must recognize God's magnificence. It's not of works, lest anyone would boast. Salvation is apart from any human effort or achievement, and God intends it that way. Because if, if it wasn't, we would boast. 
the plan of salvation, what God has done is eliminating anything that we could say, well, look what I did. We have nothing to offer, no merit to wi- by which to receive God's salvation. He offers the gift of a relationship with him. And, and when we reach into our pocket and say, well, can I give you something for it? We minimize what he is doing. If somebody gives you a gift and says, well, let me pay you for it, then it's not really a gift. It's a transaction. And if God owes me something, then I can boast. When we understand the nature of justification that is grounded in the finished work of Christ, we see that there's no room for us to do anything. Someone has said, the only thing I contribute to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Because the salvation is all of God. It cannot be of works because the work is already accomplished. It is finished, Christ said from the cross. The work of God that does it for us, and he doesn't leave the task undone. His painting doesn't need a few more brush strokes and we pick up the brush to take care of it. See, human effort would provide a basis for for human recognition. Can, Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we had some part in our salvation? And, and like little children, we would be vying for attention. Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you my story. Well, you think that happened, but I didn't get to start as early as you did. Or I was in a bigger mess than you were. You know, my, my decay was further along than yours. And, and worse than the prospect of hearing stale stories for all of eternity of how we somehow earned heaven, we would actually diminish the artistry of the master. And in doing so, our audacity would obscure his glory. See, chapter 1 made it very clear that what God is doing is to the praise of the glory of his grace. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. It's that he gets all the glory. That we can't boast. In fact, Romans 3, 27 says, where is boasting then? It is excluded by the law of works? No, by the law of faith. We can't boast because it's all of faith. And and do do we understand that if somehow we have to do something, it really diminishes what Christ has done? When when I was the, the college president, one of the things that we would do from time to time would be have groups of students to our home for a family style meal. And it was just a a good opportunity for fellowship. For some, they'd never had family-style meals growing up, and so it was a chance to teach etiquette and and then to have family worship together and to have them participate in that. But imagine that one of those students came and and sat down at the table and, and then picked up his napkin and picked up the fork and started wiping it off. What do you think my wife would think? I'm sure she would be saying, oh good, he's making it cleaner. Now that would not be what she'd be thinking. And, and, you know, suppose then that he put that down and picked up the plate and started wiping that off. At that point, I would even notice. And what do you think I'm going to think? Oh, I'm so glad he's helping out. Now, if I'd washed the dishes, I'd really be upset. But since I paid for the dishwasher, I'm still going to be upset. I'm not going to be pleased because obviously what is being communicated is whatever we did to make those things clean wasn't enough. 
When we start trying to work and say, well, what Christ did opened the door, but I need to do a few more things. I need to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save. It does not wash away sin. It's a step of obedience after we're saved. Church membership doesn't save. Good works don't save. Giving money doesn't save. If any of these did, we'd be saying, you know what, I can make this cleaner. For me to get into heaven, I can do a little bit more than what Christ did. Do we understand how not only is the boasting an issue, we are, we are diminishing the work of Christ? That God is not honored when we need to finish the cleaning process to make sinners acceptable? Salvation is by grace alone, it's through faith alone, it's in Christ alone. It leaves no room for human boasting. I've given you the quote by the Puritan Thomas Watson before, but he said, it, is the, it costs more to redeem us than to make us. To make us, it was but speaking the word. To redeem us, the shedding of blood. That is the work of God. That's what Christ did for our salvation. So why would God do such a thing? Why pay such a price? And the third thing that we see is that we should respond as God's masterpiece. <clears throat> he did it for a purpose. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we are his workmanship. The, the Greek word here for workmanship is puema. We get our English word poem from this. You know, we think of it as a written work, but, but the Greek word here is actually a broader word than that. It's the idea of something that's being made, a work that's being produced. We are the product of his work. I mean, the truth is we were a mess. He's making a masterpiece. That's the glory of God. A few years ago when we were visiting family in, in Greenville, I stopped by a, a different art gallery. It was one that displays and sells works of, of several artists in the southeast, and it, it includes several of, of the uh, professors from the art department of my alma mater. And while I was there, one of the artists came in, Carl Blair, came in with his daughter Ruthie. Ruth and I worked together at the Wilds uh, camp in North Carolina, and, and her friends and, and so she came in with her dad and I, I was talking with him now um, Mr. Blair became a leading artist of the contemporary style and and had quite a, a distinct style I I personally could never quite understand his work uh, but I was impressed with the colors and the use that he had of bold colors so I really was surprised when I learned m much later that Mr. Blair was actually colorblind. And his condition wasn't uh, discovered until he was in college. In fact, he almost got kicked out of one of his college art classes. The professor was Professor Green, and when Carl Blair turned in a self-portrait in green, the professor thought he was mocking his name. <laughs> He wasn't. Mr. Blair was colorblind. So he could see the boldness of colors, but he couldn't actually see the hues. In an article that talked about his artwork, it said that his fellow artists believed that Mr. Blair's visual limitation actually freed him from conventional combinations and hues. That what we would consider a detriment, his fellow artists actually thought it helped advance 
what he was doing. Isn't it interesting that what we would think as a limitation gave him a unique advantage? Do you realize that what you might view as a limitation and disadvantage in your life might be the very thing that God is using to make you effective? It may be the very thing he's using to display his glory and advance your ministry opportunities. I was, one day I was talking with a, a young person who was really going through some deep valleys. And they were over things that they had no control over. They were facing significant trials for a young person of their age. And, and as it, we were talking, this person said to me, I wish this were not part of my story. And I said to them, I said, you know, if I were writing your story, this would not be part of your story. But God is writing your story. And he has allowed this into your life for his glory and for your good. Because all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I said, and while I would not make it part of your story, the Lord has and his way is best. And I believe that one day we will look back and marvel at what God has done in your life because this is part of your story. Folks, God's doing a work in your life. There are probably brush strokes that we say, I wish that weren't part of my story. But God has a plan. So what are you doing? I talked to a friend recently, a pastor friend. He said, I often ask people two questions. The first one is, what do you do for a living? He said, and they love to talk about that. Well, we'll have a good discussion. He said, and then I say, can I ask you a second question? What are you living for? And sometimes we confuse the two. What we do for a living shouldn't be what we're living for. We should be living for his glory. And we need to be living with eternity in view. Because God has prepared something for us. That the, the term here, the, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, points out that we have a new walk. It's, it's pointing to that last statement of, of verse 10. That we understand that phrase is, is bringing us to the very climax of this sentence, that we are a new creation with a new walk. And that takes us back to verse 2. We once walked a certain way as children of disobedience. Now, in verse 10, we have a new walk. And as we began reading in chapter 4 today, we find that chapters 4, 5, and 6 expand on what that walk is like. We walk in unity. We walk in love. We walk in light. We walk in wisdom. We walk in the Spirit. This walk isn't simply individual, though it begins there. It's corporate. It's part of our working together as the body, being fitly joined together and, and, and giving what God would have us give for the health of the body. See, as the body of Christ, the church ought to display that, that new life in a corporate aspect. And so we show Christ-likeness in our, in our care, in our compassion, in our mercy, in our willingness to confront sin. To say, I love you too much to let you go that way. With a welcoming spirit and a joyful heart. Look, God's creating a masterpiece. And we should respond by doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do, that this is the new walk because we have a new life. So how can we apply this personally? First of all, have you experienced a life-changing faith in Christ alone? 
Folks, one of my burdens in preaching week after week is that there may be people that they hear and they say, oh yeah, I've done that, when they've never truly trusted Christ. I, I, I try to weave the gospel message into, the, into our time together every Sunday morning so that it never becomes old or stagnant. And if our attitude is, yeah, I've heard that before, and it doesn't stir our heart, that's a problem. But have you trusted Christ personally? Or are you saying, well, Christ opened the door so I can do certain things. There are many religions that say that. In fact, all of the world religions fall into two categories. One is doing. Romans 10 speaks of this. Paul said, I, might, I have a, a, a burden for my Jewish family. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. They're doing something. But it's done. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Those are the two religions. Do something to appease God, to please God, to earn merit with God, or trust in the finished work of Christ alone. Have you come to that time? Has there been that place where you have trusted in Christ alone? That, that God, God is doing a couple of things. He takes individual sinners and makes them his children. We have a relationship with the Father. And he takes hostile sinners, hostile to each other, and puts them together in one body. And that's what verses 11 through the rest of this chapter are going to expand on. The reconciliation. We're, we're a new cre creation, and then we're going to have a new community. But understanding that, secondly, are you regularly thanking God for his gift of salvation? When we talk about that in church, does that stir our hearts? Say, Lord, thank you. I don't deserve it. I was dead, defiled, defiant, and doing what I wanted. I was disobedient. We still struggle. There, there is no autopilot for purity. We have to battle. But do we thank God for his salvation? And then thirdly, in what ways do you display God's plan for your life after salvation? There are good works that God has prepared before we were born, before we were saved, that we're to walk in. And those who belong to this new creation should be characterized by a new lifestyle. It ought to reflect this new life. There ought to be a change of our character and our attitudes and our actions. God displays his grace by rescuing lost sinners who trust in Christ to become his new creation, that we will do his holy work. He is painting a masterpiece. In September of 2015, there was a painting that went up for sale through an auction house in New Jersey. The catalog listed it as simply oil on board, triple portrait of a lady fainting. It was described as a 19th century unsigned work showing paint loss, some restoration to paint and wood cracks in the frame. And you can see that in the picture. Well, when it went up for sale, the bidding began at $250. It was expected that this painting would probably sell for somewhere between $500 and $800. The bidding quickly escalated. And when the, fan, the hammer finally dropped, the painting sold for $870,000. When you calculate in the buyer's premium that was to be paid, it was over $1 million. So what made the difference? Obviously, it wasn't the, the quality of the frame and the, the texture because there were cracks and problems. 
What made the difference was there were two bidders that saw something that other people did not see. Something that a freshman in an art gallery certainly would never see. They suspected that this was not a 19th century work, but rather that it was painted in 1625. And that it was the missing image for a set of the five senses that had been painted by a Dutch teenage art student named Rembrandt. The value of the painting was not in its intrinsic beauty or the shape that it was in. It was because it was the work of a master. Folks, are there chips in your life? Cracks, brush strokes that you wish weren't part of your story? You can trust the master. He's creating a masterpiece in your life that declares his mercy and his magnificence that will be a testimony for ages to come and to principalities and powers in heavenly places as we hang in the art gallery that God was able to take such paints as us and prepare a masterpiece. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ, your salvation is God's gift with the purpose that he would be glorified by your new life. Have you trusted Christ? If not, we would love to be able to show you how to do that today. If you have, are you walking in the good works that he prepared beforehand that you should live? Are we being faithful? Let's pray together.